Amen. We are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4, and the message is called Building and Battling. If, um, if you came to this service then you're, and you didn't go to the first service, then you're blessed in the sense that um, the first service was ripped off today for one of my illustrations. Um, one of the things I brought, I brought a, um, you guys know what this is, this thing right here? Yeah, it's a, it's a trowel. If you said spatula, you failed, okay? It's, um, it's a trowel. Uh, if you were here on that Sunday morning when uh, Pastor Bill gave this to me, there's a lot of work to do. He knew we were going to be starting Nehemiah. He gave me a, a trowel for all of the work of the ministry and the building. And, and that's, some of you work with the trowel. You build walls, you, you uh, use mortar a lot, and, and that's what this is for. And so in the first service, I, I forgot one of my illustrations, and so I have my letter opener, which is a sword. And this is a, a replica of like Braveheart sword, and um, I have this, and so that's what I had to use for first service. But for second service, I was able to text uh, my son and uh, my wife, and they brought the other one, which is okay. Now this this, this is a sword. This thing is uh, this thing is awesome. It's a replica that. Uh, Actually, Justin, the pastor at Calvary Chapel Gilroy, gave me as a, a gift when I was leaving. And so this was, uh, I've always wanted, my brother has one of these, and I'm always coveting when I go over to his house. And so now I have one, and uh, I use it for uh, home protection, so uh, it's, it's really cool. But a sword and a trowel, it's, it's really relevant because this morning we're talking about building and battling. And so a sword, the, the New Testament talks about the Word of God being a, a sword. And that sword is for home protection. It is for our protection. It's also, um, it, it says it discerns our thoughts. It's kind of like, um, I used to be an English teacher, so uh, my, one of my favorite novels to teach uh, would be To Kill a Mockingbird. And uh, I love all of the things that I would just glean from that. But when you teach that for six periods a day, and you do that, you know, for you know, the, a month going through that novel, and then you do it year after year after year, it loses a little bit of its impact. You know, Atticus Finch, when he gives his speech, it doesn't really move me the same way that it used to move me. But the Word of God is living and active. It's powerful. It, it slices. It discerns my thoughts. And so I could read the same passage that I've read many different times, and the Holy Spirit can just use that to just kind of cut away those layers of of my thoughts that were wrong or or encourage me, or rebuke me, or exhort me. And so this morning, we have a trowel and we have a sword, because in life, as in, as in Nehemiah, there's building and there's battling. Now, we know some things here. We know that when it comes to the city of Jerusalem, um, the city of Jerusalem was a city that was set on a hill. In Israel, those are called tells. That's why some cities are called like Tel Dan. It's the city of Dan. They're set up on top of a hill, and when a city is wiped out and a new culture comes in, a new country comes in, you know what they would do is they would build on top of that city. So as they dig down, they find layer after layer after layer, many times of cities that are on these hills. So when Jesus in the New Testament said that you're a city that is set on a hill, um, you're the light of the world, that, that city cannot be hidden, this city, Jerusalem, was to represent God's presence. Now, God is everywhere, but the temple was built in Jerusalem. That was where the people would come to worship. And so as people were approaching from far away, they would see the city in a distance, and they understood and they knew what that city stood for. Now, for us, um, a city on a hill, a, a church is a group of people. In the New Testament, it's the word ecclesia. It's, it's a group of people that are called out. And so as a group, God has called us, and, and not just our church, Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, but the church, which is all of God's people that are called according to his name, all the worshipers of Jesus, we're, we're to be like that city of God. Um, Augustine wrote a work called The City of God. And, and so it's, it's how we live in a way that bids other people to come and visit, to come and be a part of this. Jesus said that um, people would know that we are his disciples by what? By our love for one another. So... In a sense, they would see that we live a little bit differently. We live in the culture, but yet there's a different culture that's even stronger within our lives. And I, I wrote this. It says that 
a city on a hill, city of refuge. These cities were places where people could come. Um, Santa Cruz County is an amazing and diverse community, yet within that community is a church, a gathering of people that has responded to the good news that Jesus came and died for our sin to restore our broken fellowship with God. We are a church that responds to God's great love by following him and loving others. It's our hope that as God's spirit changes us and we live according to his word, it draws others to follow him along with us. That's why when you consider Jerusalem, there were gates. Gates were entryways for people to come into the city. They weren't, um, the city was not simply built to keep things out, but there were walls for protection. And the reason why contextually I think it's important to understand this is that we could make a mistake when we think, okay, church Christianity is a closed place. It's a place where outsiders aren't allowed to come in, and it's a separation from culture and society. Now, we're not to be um, of the world. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And yet we're to go out into the world and live in such a way that people see a difference within us. That being said, when I think about our county, yesterday there was something that was called Serve the Bay. Um, There were a a group of people from the church here that went to uh, De La Viega Park to rebuild um, some fences and to work on some trails. And all throughout Santa Cruz County, there were different churches that were working on different projects. Some were going to schools, some were feeding people, there there were different things. And, And the purpose of that is not only to beautify a a trail or to make it stable, it's to show people that we love the city, that we love the community. We're going to them to say that we love you and we're reaching out to you. Now, as we do that, I wanted to paint that as the backdrop because there are also times when we have to battle. And I think that sometimes it's important to understand how we battle as believers and what a spiritual battle is because sometimes we get the enemy mistaken and, and we, we battle in the wrong way. There's a guy named Thomas Rayner who's a researcher. Um, he wrote this. Um, he, he did research amongst non-Christians. And he wrote an article about his research. It's called What Non-Christians Really Think About Christians. So if you're not a Christian, maybe you've thought some of these things. Um, he said that in his research, one of his favorite things to do is to talk to people about um, what they believe that Christians are like. And he gets a joy from listening to them because it helps him to relate to them. So he said that over the years, he's gleaned these things and he listed these seven comments that were the most popular seven comments when non-Christians were asked about Christians. So in order of frequency, here's number one. Christians are against more things than they are for. That is the number one response of non-Christians to Christians, that they're against more things that they're for. Um, And I think it's important that as we represent Jesus, that we're for Jesus. So when we try to reach out to people, remember that we don't try to reach out to people with a sense of this is all of the things that we're against. Now, it's okay to stand up for what you believe in. we, We should do those things. But this is how we're reaching out to people. Does that make sense? When you reach out to someone, you come to them with with the gospel. You come with them with the fact that they're separated from God, but God loves them. But number two was, I would like to develop a friendship with a Christian. Maybe someone invited you here today, and that's, that's a blessing. That's great that you're here. But a lot of people would love to have a friendship with a Christian. They would just, for me as a pastor, I'll tell you, when I, I go stir crazy is working in Christian circles, I go nuts if I don't get to talk to people that aren't Christians enough. Um, there was a point in time where I was, I was very, very close to going back to teaching in a public school, still pastoring the church, but just teaching in the public school because I so missed that interaction with my fellow teachers and the administration and the students that weren't believers. See, we're, we're not to pull away from those people. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Number three, I would like to learn about the Bible from a Christian. Now, maybe you, that, that one might have caught you off guard, but there are people that don't know the Lord. They don't know what the Bible is. We can't assume today that there's a level of Bible knowledge anymore. Um, it used to be in public school, you could use Noah's Ark as an illustration, and now there are students that have never heard of Noah's Ark. Uh, you could talk about Moses, and they don't know who Moses was, but they would like to learn. Number four, and this one really hits the heart. It says, 
I don't see much difference in the way Christians live compared to others. Now, that's, that's a sad statement. Um, there's a cultural Christianity. And my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit just cuts right through today that this is not a cultural thing. This is a God thing. There's a real God that wants relationship with us. And it's not just like social mores or, or you know, a, a church might be a good thing to add to my life and, you know, religion might be a, a good thing because, you know, we're kind of lacking that, so we should have some religion. That's not what it's about. It's about this relationship with God, and there should be a difference in the way that we live. Number five, I wish I could learn to be a better husband slash wife slash dad slash mom, etc. from a Christian which is a good thing. That means that many people that aren't Christians still see that there's something about the way that Christians function as husbands and wives or as families that attracts them, that says, hey, I, I want some of that. Maybe they could teach me about that. And it, again, it's a great way to reach out to people. Number six, some Christians try to act like they have no problems. Um, you know, if, if uh, you're one of those people, then uh, there's either a, a self-deception or a deception of others because we all got problems, right? We are all, you know, one of the biggest problems in marriage is that there's a, a, a sinner and a sinner, you know, and they get married. And one of the biggest problems of having kids is now you have little sinners and then you're trying to raise them as big sinners. And man, there's sin all in the bunch. And so we... We go through things like anyone else does, and yet we have a way to live, and we have the Holy Spirit that changes us and works in our lives. And finally, number seven, and listen to this one. I wish a Christian would take me to his or her church. That was the seventh biggest response. Over 38% of the people that um, were surveyed said that they would come to church if someone invited them. So imagine 38% of the world saying we would come if someone only invited us. And that's the reason why it's so important. As I'm teaching through Nehemiah, the city that is set on a hill is a city that is a city of refuge. It's bringing people in. You know, the name Calvary, it's the cross. It's where Jesus was crucified. So when we bring people in, we're, we're bringing people to that place. Now, with that being said, it's important to understand that whenever a child of God says, let us arise and build, the enemy says, let me arise and oppose. So along with building... There's going to be battling. And I want to read through Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 10 through 23 with you, and then we're going to pull some things out from this text that I believe the Holy Spirit has for us today. Actually, verse 9. It says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing. There's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us ten times that from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and I arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And so it was from that time on, half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears, the shields, um, and the bows and wore armor, and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and one who, surrounded, who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so we labored in the work. And half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, Let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party, party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, 
nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. Now, I want you to hear in this a building project. And a building project is more than bricks and mortar. It's more than the physical walls. It's more than um, rebuilding the structure of the city. There's a rebuilding of people. There's a restoration of lives that is taking place. And there's an urgency in which Nehemiah and the builders are building. Um, I, I don't know if you have ever stayed overnight at work. I'm sure that many of you have. Maybe it's in an office. You're doing accounting. Numbers are due and you stayed overnight. But some of you may have even stayed overnight at a job site. Uh, you worked until late hours. You're trying to get it done. And part of the reason maybe why you stayed was security. You know, you were afraid someone was going to come and steal your copper. And so, you know, you spent the night. You, you set a guard. You set a watch. See, part of building is that we set a watch. And that watch is set day and night. We talked a little bit about this last week. Um, at night, it, it's at times usually when we're resting. So, Yes, there's still a watch that's going on. In the day, it's usually when you don't expect someone to try to attack. And yet we, we realize that in watching, there's accountability to watch day and night. They, they built next to each other. So imagine you're working on one section of the wall, and you look next to you, and the guy that's supposed to be building that section doesn't show up. What do you do? You look for him. Where'd he go? Did, someone, did, did he get taken out? Is there something going on? See, when we're building, when it comes to being Christians, when it comes to building in the kingdom of God, we're to be accountable to one another so that how many people were building right next to us and we don't know where they are. And then we don't ask and we don't go look for them and we don't pray for them and we don't call them because we're afraid maybe of offending them. Maybe we're afraid that they might take it wrong or being too invasive. Accountability is not just sin management. It means that we're building together. I love Jim Harbaugh. He's... I, I'm. Deanna says I have a man crush on him, whatever that means. But just because I listen to his podcast and I have my 49er app that I watch all the time and every time he has a press conference I listen to it doesn't mean that I have a man crush. But I, I like what he says because when he came to the team, he says I'm, I'm coming to the team with full accountability. My coaching staff has full accountability and all of my players and our staff and the owners have full accountability. In other words, the accountability is to the fans in the city of San Francisco and what they're trying to do. And even more so when it comes to something more important than football. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there's an accountability that we should have towards one another. We should be accountable to be building, to be doing the things that God has called us to do. They set a watch, they watched over the city, and they watched over the family. And again, when it comes to watching over the city, when I think of the church as a pastor, um, I realize that it's not my church, it's God's church. I'm an under-shepherd. That gives me so much, um, there is responsibility. Paul says, uh, what comes upon me daily is concern for the body of Christ. So there are those things. But I also have to give my burdens to the Lord and realize it's God's church. He's going to take care of the church. But the same is true when it comes to the family. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. Unless the Lord guards over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And then he starts to talk about the family. How many of you as parents have just laid awake at night just worried about your kids? Just worried about where are they, what they're doing, worried about what they're, what they're thinking. And you know what? There's, there's a concern that as parents we, we deal with those things. And yet I have to understand as much as I love my kids, as much as I watch over them and pour into them, I can't be with them all the time. The Lord is going to watch over them. God loves my kids more than I love my kids. And because of that, I need to be able to entrust them to the Lord. You know, my daughter is talking about going to Spain, you know, for next semester in, in college. She'll be in, in a different country. She'll be away. And you hear about all these things on the news about different places in the world. And there's a little bit of a fear. But you know what? She belongs to the Lord. So I need to trust that to the Lord. Now, um, I just feel like I, I should say this to us as parents. There's a funnel shape when it comes to raising kids. And the funnel should look, it, it should be a funnel that looks like, like a tornado, you know, in, in that way. So that from the time that they're young, there's more restriction. There's more, hey, don't touch that. 
don't go here, don't do this. There's more rules, more boundaries that are set. And as you love them and in relationship, you give them responsibility. Hopefully there's a trust that's built up and the funnel begins to widen so that more responsibility is given as they earn it. And there's more freedoms that are earned as well. And then as they get to be adults, then, then that funnel obviously is more, we're more friends and influencers than we are like, you know, parents that are saying, don't do this and don't do that. What happens is too many times parents flip the funnel. And when they're kids, the kids can do whatever they want. They could go to sleep when they want. They could run around. They could, they could play with toys. They could eat what they want. They could, you know, there's no rules and it's just kind of free play. Just run, do whatever you feel like doing. And then the older they get, now it's starting to rain in the, you know, and now you can't do this. Now it's more restrictive. And it just breeds this rebellion. It breeds this frustration because they're at a place where now they should have a little bit more freedom and they should have a little bit more decision-making ability. And hopefully that happens in the context of relationship. Now, I just just felt like the Lord wanted me to share that. That's not in my notes. I didn't share it in first service. But I just know as parents, we need to do those things. And so they're setting a watch. Um, I I just took my son Josiah camping on Angel Island because he had school off on Thursday and Friday. And what I've done, Deanna did this with our oldest daughter. When she hit junior high, Deanna took her away. And they just talked about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a woman of God, what it means about choices and decisions and all of the things that are going to face her during her teenage years. When Matthew hit junior high, I did that with, with my son, Matt. And now with, with Josiah, that's what we did. We went out to Angel Island and we, we camped and we just talked about life. And it was awesome. We hiked you know, we looked at, you know, as sunset hit and you could see Oakland over here and San Francisco over here. You could see the Golden Gate and the Bay Bridge. And we just, we just talked about life. We, we talked about relationship with the opposite sex. We talked about values and, and what does culture teach you as opposed to what does God teach you? That's setting a watch. That is being proactive rather than reactive. Because I want my son to hear it from me first in the right way than to hear it from other people and hear it the wrong way and for me to have to come on the back of that and correct all these misconceptions about sex and life and death and all of these things. I want him to know those things from me, that God invented that and it's God's idea and it's a good thing in the context of how God created us. And so we set a watch and yet we have to understand that ultimately the Lord is the one that watches over the city. So with the, the building, there's also trash. There's rubbish that needs to be removed. Any of you that are builders know if you're not a good manager of your workspace, pretty soon there's so much clutter you can't build. And I don't care. I'm not just talking about walls. I mean scrapbooks, you know, if it's a model, if it's, you know, a car and the parts are just kind of out and the tools are kind of out, you, you got to remove the rubbish. Now, as... As a Christian, there's rubbish that needs to be removed in our lives. And really, the Lord is the one that he, he's, he's great at helping us to do these things. Um, laying aside the weight. Some of the things that need to be removed in our lives are, are not necessarily sinful. They're just things that weigh us down. Um, the Olympics. I love to watch swimming, especially... Uh, you know, I've watched Michael Phelps for the last few Olympics, and, and I'm not a, uh, you know, I was never on a swim team. It's fun to watch how dedicated these guys are. And, and these guys will shave, and, and you, I don't know if you notice, some of the guys shave eyebrows. There are guys that shave eyebrows to cut off tenths and hundredths and thousandths of a second. Some of them have those suits. They say they're even more aerodynamic than a body that's shaved down. And yet, there's no rule against this guy coming up there with a full-on coat of hair. You know, I, I just, I think it would be so funny to see this, this guy come up to the, the starting block. And man, you know, you know those guys that like, they, they, they shave like this, and then it grows again, and they shave, and like, like it's coming out of their shirt, it's on their back. And, and imagine the guy, like he's, he's there, and there's no rule against him swimming with all of his hair like that. He could do that, but there's going to be drag. It'll slow him down. As Christians, there are freedoms that we have that if those freedoms are not under submission to the Holy Spirit, those things can weigh us down. I'll tell you that every year um, we play fantasy football. I've been doing it for like 10 years, and and I dominate, just dominate our league. It's with the other pastors in Calvary San Jose and some of my relatives down there, and 
in Southern California, and, and we have these two trophies. One is called the Stupendous Bowl, which my wife calls the Stupidest Bowl. And <clears throat> we have another trophy that was called the Toilet Bowl. And, and the toilet bowl is if you lose, you get your name engraved on the, it's a plunger. And it's, uh, it's this toilet bowl. So anyway, we play, and, and I'll tell you, when I first started to play, I used to get like way into this thing. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you how much into it I would get. I'd get so far into it that as soon as church was over, I, I, I'm, like, I'm like chomping at the bit to get out the door. Like I don't feel like fellowshipping with anyone or talking to anyone because I want to check the scores. I want to check the stats. I want to find out what's going on. And and the Lord convicted me of that. Not that it's wrong, because it's a freedom, and I still dominate my league usually for the most part. But um, I'm not. It's not weighing me down as much. It's not something where I'm, I'm thinking about that. And what I'm trying to say is this: that sometimes as Christians, there are weights that slow us down when it comes to the building of God. For you, it could be a hobby. It could be shopping. It could be gardening. Those things are good. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. But anything taken to extreme can start to take the place of the things that are truly important. And they could be weights that slow us down. I mean, even owning a home is, I mean, what a blessing if God blesses you with a home. But if that home begins to consume so that all of the time and all of the energy and everything is the home. It's not relationship. It's not building the kingdom. It's not ministry. It's not reaching out to people that don't know Christ. It's just the home then that thing that God has given maybe as a blessing can become a snare. There are also weights of our past. We keep looking at our past, and that's what weighs us down. God can't use me because, man, 10 years ago, this is what I was like. Five years ago, this is what I struggled with. Last week, this was what I did. And you know, when we repent, which means that we turn from our sin, we ask for forgiveness— the enemy will always try to get us to stop going forward because we're too busy looking backward. We're always looking over our shoulder, always worried that our past is going to catch up to us, always thinking about these bad decisions we've made. And yeah, we could learn from them, and it's a part of who we are, but we got to go forward. And then there's sins that ensnare. I don't need to go into all of the list of these things, but addiction is at an all-time high of and it's not just drugs. People can be addicted to self. I mean, that, I really believe that's the biggest addiction today. It's just selfishness. It's just thinking about what everyone else is thinking about me. And I want to let you in on a secret. They're not, right? <laughs> They're not thinking about, because what is everyone else thinking? They're thinking, what is everyone else thinking about me? And so don't worry about it. No one, hey, you know, we don't have to let that ensnare us. Now, with that comes battling, because if God arises to build, he blesses us. Um, Jesus said this, Jesus is the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. But in John chapter 10, he says the thief comes only to what? To rob, to kill, and to destroy. Any vestige of the presence of God in your life, the enemy wants to break down. He wants to rip you off from any life that God... In fact, the things that we so easily get wrapped up into when it comes to sin... It's the opposite of the way that God wants to bless us. God wants to bless you. God wants to bless me. He's a blessing God. And yet when God begins to do that, we have to understand that the battle starts. When the battle begins, um, we know from last week the wall was halfway built. The, the gaps were beginning to be closed up. And as this happens, um, I want you to notice that the enemy steps us up his attack. Read with me in verse 11. Our adversary said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So what is the plan? It's to make the work stop. In verse 12, so it was when the Jews, notice it was the Jews who dwelt near them came and they told us 10 times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Now, um, as Christians, I think it's important that we're, we're real at times and, and we're realistic, but not to the point of not having faith and not to the point of not having hope. Maybe you're pessimistic by nature. Your demeanor is kind of, that's the way that you are. And other people are more optimistic. But I'll tell you what, that so many times we could discourage Christians from, from doing what God's called them to do by just being pessimistic. 
And I think one of the saddest things as a new believer that is just on fire, walking with the Lord, zealous of the things of God, and then you hear this one Christian that they get around and they're like, oh, that's going to wear off. I, I've actually been around Christians that have said that to new believers. Uh, just wait, you know, you're not going to be so joyful pretty soon, you know. And Like, why would I ever want what he has, you know? And, and yet, when God wants to do a work, there's going to be Christians that say, your marriage isn't going to last. Yeah, I thought my marriage would last. It didn't. Yours isn't either. You know what? I, I hear this. I hear this a lot, and it drives me crazy. Wait till your kids are teenagers. So when Rebecca was a little kid and walking with the Lord, she wanted to be baptized when she was five, and, and she had all these things that, you know, she would witness to people in, in the grocery store. Do you know about Jesus? And there was one time the grocer, he kind of freaked out, and he, like, ignored her. And she goes, excuse me, tugged on his little apron. Do you know about Jesus? And he looked at her and started walking away. And then he started walking faster. And she's like, do you know, do you know about Jesus? And she's like chasing him down the aisle. And like, he's like running, like he's all freaked out. And, and you know what? People would tell me, oh, just wait till she's a teenager. Because teenage girls, they're the worst, you know. And, you know, you're going to have all these things. And I'm like, why would you tell me? It's okay to prepare me and say, hey, there's going to be challenges that you're going to face. But don't like... Throw that on, this curse upon me like you're going to be cursed when she's a teenager. And then, you know, she, she had her lumps and just went through trials like any other teenager. And then she's walking with the Lord in college. And then my boys are coming up. And then, oh, boys. Just wait. You know, it's because it's boys. And you know what? Uh, it's important that we don't just, like, focus on all the negative and all of the things that could happen. And sometimes we can be so fearful of the world. We're not, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. <clears throat> sound mind. So we're not to fear those things. You know what happens when the threats come? They come ten times, not once. Imagine someone telling you something once. Like, okay, I heard you. Oh, just wait. Okay, I heard you. Oh, just wait. You know, it's going to be bad. Okay, I know, I know. You know, go ahead. Try to pastor a church in Santa Cruz County. See what that's going to be like. You know, see what happens... Okay, okay, I heard that. God's called me to do this. I, but you, it's going to be bad. You just don't know. And man, stop. Stop. See, Nehemiah, he doesn't stop the work. He doesn't get intimidated. You know what instead? You know what they do? They start to build. You know what Nehemiah does as a leader? He knows that the threat is real. Now, our threats aren't even as real as other threats, right? I mean, I, I haven't been threatened by my life in quite a while. No one's come up to me and said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take you out. That's what they're saying in Nehemiah's time. But I want you to notice that he prepares for this. How? He positioned people. It says in verse 13, Therefore, I positioned men. Where? Behind the lower parts of the wall and at the openings. As a leader, look at your family. Where are the weaknesses? Where's the wall low? Where are there possibilities of the enemy getting in? I think when it comes to life in 2012, one of the ways that we have to watch ourselves and put a self-watch is pace. It's the daily grind. I mean, having four kids at home and Deanna working full-time and ministry and all these things, I just got to go, okay, you know what? If we don't get on top of this and ask the Lord for wisdom and discipline in this our schedule will start running us instead of us running our schedule. And if our schedule starts to run us, it's going to cut down on relationship and it's going to cut down on quiet time and times of worship and intimacy and friendship and all of these things in a family that you should have. So we got to get ahead of that and set a watch. So in that watch, what are some things, how are we going to position people as a church? Where are their needs? Where are their gaps? Um, there's quite a few people in the church recently that have just shared their heart for evangelism. And I'm super excited about that. Equipping people to be able to share their faith. And, and that's, that's a gap. There's an area where, hey, we could build on that gap. That's an area of the wall. Let's position some people there. Outreach. Let's position some people there. Um, reaching out to certain segments of our population. Let's position some people there. And then they were also equipped people. And that's why we're here. We're equipping. That's what, that's what my job is. That's what pastor's jobs are for. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So 
we're not to do all of the work in the ministry. We're to do a lot of the work of the ministry, but you are too. Don't think that you're passive by coming and sitting and I'm the one that's exercising ministry or the children's ministry or worship or sound. No, we all are. This is a huddle. And after a huddle, what should happen? You should execute a play. You know, I, I hate going to a football game where they huddle up and then they get the penalty for too much time. You ever get that? Too much time in the huddle. Penalty. Move it back. Huddle up again. Okay, here's the play, you know. Break. And they go up to the line. Too much time. Huddle back. I think that sometimes as Christians, we could do that. We could have holy huddles of men's ministry and women's ministry and gather of worship and doing this and doing that. But there's a play to execute not only here but out there. We can't just huddle. We've got to break from the huddle and do something with the information and with the equipping. And that's what Nehemiah does. Notice that when he equips them, he equips them not only um, at the certain places, but it says in verse 13, with their swords and their spears and their bows. As a pastor, I'm to feed you the word of God to equip, to teach. You have to be a self-feeder. If this is the only meal that you eat all week, you're going to be weak. If this is the only time that you crack open this Bible, the only time that you're opening it up and praying and saying, God, use me and teach me, you know what? You're not going to make it. You're going to get wiped out. I'm going to get wiped out. We need to be equipped people with the word of God. And then the the next thing, to prepare for war in a real spiritual battle, we need to be motivated people. In verse 14, it says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Um, I'll, I'll let you in on some stuff. Um, so Matthew, when he got to junior high and we, uh, we hiked Half Dome, that was our getting away, kind of like talking about what it means to be a, a man. Um, one of the things that I did is I brought a little DVD player, and don't judge me for this, we watched Braveheart together, okay? That was, that was the, the film that we watched together. This war movie about, like, this sword, you know, and all of these things that he's doing. And, and one of the things I wanted him to see after we talked about it was about life. Life is battle. Do you realize that life is war? If we don't equip our kids for the battles that they're going to face. If I don't equip you as the church, if we're not equipped, we're going to get wiped out. We have to be prepared in a way that we're motivated by protection of our family, protection of our church, protection of the things of God, and not by withdrawing from the world to the, to the sake of not reaching out to them. There's a difference between the two. When we're motivated, it's important for my family to know why I do what I do. Don't watch this movie. Don't go to this place. I'm not going to allow you to do this. Why? Now, sometimes as young kids, they don't need to know why. And even as older kids, sometimes you just say, hey, because that's, that's what I said. But if I only say because I said and they don't understand the why, they won't understand my motivation behind it. When Nehemiah is telling them to fight, you know what he does? He stations them with their family. And I'll tell you, if, if there's a real war, the wimpiest, most passive guy will all of a sudden become a warrior if his family is right there and someone is going to try to wipe out his family. And you know what? You might think, well, you know, I'm a, a pacifist and, uh, you know, <laughs> we'll protect you. You know, uh, well, <laughs> if you are spiritually, there is no passivity. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about a physical fight. I'm talking about a spiritual fight. There are Christians that are spiritually passive. I'm saved, but you know what? I just, I'm not going to share my faith with anyone because it might offend them. It it might start a controversy. I might get fired. It might start a battle. Um, I'm not going to, I'm just going to lay low in the family. I'm not really going to share my faith with my kids or with my parents or with people that I, and, and I understand living it in a way so that they see it in us and they want to know those things. That's what we should do. But it is important to be motivated. Listen to this. This is what Winston Churchill said in his first speech as the new prime minister of England, right as they were launching into World War II and England was being surrounded by the Axis powers. Um, He said, I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, 
I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all of our might and with all of the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer it in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aid of all and say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. Do you think that that rallied people together in England? you think it made them realize that there is no other option? And as Christians, there's a real spiritual battle. We're not in a Christian Disneyland. We don't come to church so that we could just come and just have fun and sing some songs and feel like we, we satisfied the Jesus part of our lives. And he's an add-on. You know, it's kind of nice to have that little add-on. I, I, I fulfilled the religious box. I don't have to say religion, none. I can say religion, some. That's not what Jesus is all about. Jesus said this, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus doesn't pull punches. And I think that we make a mistake when we make Christianity too convenient. To be a disciple of Christ, it costs something. There's something of sacrifice that's involved in it. There is something of life and blood and sweat and, yes, tears that is poured into those things so that it has to raise us off of our laziness to say, I'm going to do something about it. There are people that are perishing. If I really believe the Bible, it's a tragedy if I don't do anything about the people that don't know the Lord. If I really believe the words of Jesus and I really believe that the Bible is true, it's a tragedy that I'm not all about the kingdom of God. And what Nehemiah was doing is he was positioning, equipping, and motivating the people to say, remember what it is that we're doing. This is why we build, and this is why we protect. And therefore, you need a couple of different tools. You need the sword and the trowel. Spurgeon used to publish a, a publication called The Sword and the Trowel. The trowel, it's working, it's building. It says in verse 15, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction. What is building? Building is discipleship. Building is growth. Building is reaching out to people. But then there's a protection. There's a sword for battling. And what is the sword for? To protect and fight. It says, while the other half held spears, shields, and bows, and wore armor, and the leaders were behind them, all, and all the house of Judah. We need to protect the things that God has given to us. I need to protect my marriage. I need to be vigilant and watching in my marriage. If there are things that are trying to come in to attack my marriage, I need to be vigilant in my family. I need to be vigilant in my walk with Christ. Are there ways that the enemy, if I were the enemy and I was trying to get me to fall, what would I do? Because if I know myself well, do you realize that the enemy studies us well also? You read the screw tape letters? There's real spiritual battles. Maybe for you it's pride, self-righteousness. You just think you're better than other people. That's the thing. Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's an addiction. Whatever it is, there's a sword because there's protection that has to happen. And then we begin to build and battle together. Remember this. The battling should never replace the building. If I'm going through a battle, a struggle, maybe it's with something in my own life that I'm facing. What happens is when I'm going through trials, I, I start throwing out pity parties, you know, invitations. I'm writing the invitations. I call someone and talk. And then what I find out is that people aren't coming. And like, I'm like, hey, I'm having this pity party. You know, my life is really hard right now. I remember I called one pastor one time. And I was telling him how hard things were, and I could hear him smiling on the other end of the line. And I'm like, why? And he said, you know what, Matt? He said, you're just being tested right now, and God's going to do a work. And he goes, it's going to be such a good thing, because if you get through this test, God's going to strengthen you. 
that was not the response I wanted. I wanted, I wanted the, oh, man, things are so hard for you. You know, why don't you come back to Southern California? You know, why don't you? And, and I remember how hard that was. The battling, I'll tell you, sometimes we stop building. We only focus, our, our eyes, instead of being focused on people that are hurting and the world that's around us in ministry, it gets introspective. And we look at what we're going through. And I don't notice you. I don't notice your struggle. I don't notice your trial because I'm too busy thinking about my trial and my struggle. I stop building. I don't want to advance the kingdom. I'm not reaching out to people. I'm not saying, God, use me. I'm just worried about my own little battle. We need to build and battle. One can't replace the other. And as we're building and battling, we build and battle together. As they build and battle together, they were part of a team. I want to close with this. It says in verse 17, those who built on the wall, those who carried the burdens, they loaded themselves with one hand. They worked at construction. With the other, they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great. It's extensive. There's a lot of work. But we're separated far from one another on the wall. You're building on this side of town. I'm building at this side of town. You're building at that job. I'm building at this school. I'm building in this neighborhood. You're building in that. And it says, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. This morning, it is so important for us to understand this. We don't have to fight as much for victory as much as we fight from victory. Our God will fight for us. Now, we have to do our part. We have to be vigilant. But it's really the Lord's battle. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so if someone attacks me um, verbally, makes fun of me, mocks me, threatens me, you know what? I need to do what Nehemiah did and pray for that person and commit that person to the Lord and keep on working. Keep on building. Don't let it stop. And you know what? When that response is in that way, they say, why, why do you have that kind of faith? Why do you have that kind of hope? They labored and they built. They worked together. We're part of a team. What is your part on the wall? This morning, we have an opportunity to respond to the message in some different ways. See, the first response is this. Some of us need to respond, and we all need to respond by receiving. What do we receive? We receive God's grace. If you walk away from here condemned, then you didn't hear the message of the cross. Because the cross is all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not a works-based thing. We are building, but it's not works-based. It's what Jesus has done for us. And some of you need to receive that grace. You've messed up. Yeah, you could look back and you have messed up in your life and you have hurt people and you have rebelled against God. And maybe you feel like it's too late for me. It's not too late. As the worship team comes up, you're going to have an opportunity to receive that grace. Some of us need to receive God's love. We're just doubting that God loves us. Or maybe we need to re receive the calling that he has, and we haven't received that calling. And then we're going to respond in giving. The reason why we give is that it's commanded in God's word. It's tithes and offerings is an act of worship. It's my time. It's my effort. It's tithes and offerings to be a part of what God is doing. And it's a response not so much to, hey, we have needs as much as it is God desires for us to put him first in all things. It's one of the ways that we respond. And then we need to respond in obedience. Obedience. That means I offer my life. That means if there is something that the Holy Spirit has spoken to me today, I need to deal with that. If it was only a message that inspired or convicted or motivated me, but I did nothing with it, that's called disobedience. And a little bit of disobedience is called disobedience, right? So I need to respond to God's message. And this morning, we're going to pray and, and we're going to respond to the message and what God has for us. And Father, today we, we want to thank you that in this work, Lord, um, it, it says in your word that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you have prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So God, this morning, I want to respond. We want to respond to that. 
Lord, in your word, it says that um, you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so, first of all, Lord, if there is anyone here that has never responded to that message, has never received that grace and love and mercy, has never received Christ as their Lord and their Savior, I pray that today, Lord, would be the day of salvation. If that's you and you've never prayed a prayer of faith, and what that is, it's basically just saying to God, I do. God's offering himself. He's saying he wants to come into your life to forgive you, to change you, to fill you with his spirit. And this offer is free, but there's a cost in living this Christian walk. We don't pay the price to become Christians. We receive the price that has been paid, the blood of Christ. And so if that is you, simply pray in faith, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Fill me with your spirit. I don't know all of what that means, but I know that I want to live for you. I want a life that counts. I want a life that matters for eternity. I want to know that if I died, I would be with you. Lord, please forgive me. And I receive that gift of salvation. Thank you for dying for me that I could know you. And Lord, as believers, we also want to receive that grace that we need on a daily basis. God, your grace is sufficient. I pray, Father, for any person here that is on the verge of quitting and giving up. God, they're just struggling, struggling in in life, just struggling walking with you, struggling even getting to church here this morning. Father, encourage. Lord, build up lives, restore. And Father, help us to remember that in this battle, this is your battle. We thank you, Jesus, that you've attained that victory for us. And then, Father, we also want to respond in obedience. Lord, in tithes and offerings, in in offering our lives to you and saying, God, use us. Use us to reach people. Use us for your work, your ministry. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. And we, we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would just fill us. Do that work in us that we could never do on our own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.